is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Well, hello there. Hope you are well this afternoon. Today, some new technology that could help make mice infertile and put an end to any future mice plagues. So we've done some modelling in this paper and we've shown that using this system, we can release 256 mice into a population of 200,000 on an island and that would eradicate those 200,000 mice in about 25 years. More on that technology after news headlines at half past 12 today. And just before one, Tracy Kilner is going to be along. She's going to go through the yarding and the prices at today's Katanning sheep sale. The total yarding, just under 7,000 head today. But on the other side of the country... A massive sheep and lamb sale is planned for Wagga Wagga in New South Wales tomorrow, largely due to all the rain and the flooding that's going on at the moment. So many of the farmers deciding to offload their stock. But how many head do you think the sale is expecting? So just under 7,000 here at Katanning today, but over in Wagga Wagga, considering that sort of weather conditions and the flooding, what do you think it might be? The total yarding. Sheep and lambs tomorrow at Wagga Wagga. Text through with your guests, 0448 922 You'll find out just before one o'clock here on the Country Hour. Six past 12. And the Bravo apple, you know the one, it's got that dark red skin and the crisp white flesh. It is going to be rebranded to expand its opportunities into new export markets. Now, don't worry the apple born and bred right here in WA's southwest will still be known as the Bravo here. But overseas, it's going to be known as the Saluna. Sean Engelbracht is the National Development Manager for Bravo and says the meaning behind the new name makes it a perfect fit. Saluna was chosen, which really refers to the sun and the moon and to embody the really dark burgundy skin contrasted against the crisp white flesh of the apple. But what was the main reason for the rebrand? The key reason for the rebrand was not to have any limitations in in terms of market access from the trademark perspective. The previous trademark, Bravo, did not have access into all the markets that we wanted to target. And so the thinking was to do a relaunch on the international brand and to use a brand that'll, that'll enable us to access markets that currently we don't have access to. Not from a biosecurity point of view, but from a trademark point of view. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Just out of interest, which markets were the ones where the the trademark was taken? So that would be UK, Europe and um, North America. In terms of the markets we're currently exporting to, those are in Southeast Asia, is Singapore, Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, Philippines and Hong Kong. And then into the Middle East, it's uh, the UAE. So, Sean, you've been overseas recently meeting some of the buyers. Where have you been and what's the response been like? So, the new international brand, uh, Suluna, was, was, or trademark, was launched at Asia Fruit Logistica last week. It was unveiled at Bangkok, at Asia Fruit Logistica. And that was really the first time that we could get some first-hand feedback around what the brand looks like, the name and how that positions with current trade partners. The feedback has been overwhelmingly positive. 
nobody wants to go through a brand change or change inevitably is something that we all have a natural resistance to. But it was an absolute delight to see the positive feedback from trade partners, current as well as potential future trade partners. So it was well received. We had some fruit present in Asia at Bangkok last week for people to test and to trial. And the response has just been phenomenal. So we're all extremely excited about what the future will hold for not only this product globally, but specifically for the Australian industry. Yeah, sounds like it was a success then. Were there any new contracts signed last week? No formal contracts entered into, but certainly a lot of active interest into territories currently not being supplied with the Apple. So it's really, I would say, had two functions to it, which was the existing trade partners to talk about the future volume expansion in 2023 and beyond, and then specifically with new potential trade partners around UK, Europe and the Middle East. And that's been quite some significant opportunities that we feel we'll be able to tap into next year and beyond. And so while I have you, Sean, how was the seasons for Bravo this year in terms of volumes? So the volume was up about 30% on a crop level nationally which is driven largely by the organic growth and the uptake of the variety, especially on the East Coast. As you know, the variety being bred locally in in Manjimup was first adopted by local growers. And then we saw a rapid expansion to the East Coast to such a point where the East Coast today is producing more fruit from the variety than the West Coast. So overall, the volumes were up about 30%. We're expecting a similar sort of increase for the 2023 season, which is around the corner. And overall, in terms of exports, we've seen the volume at least double into into Asia and the Middle East this, this season compared to last season. Sean Engelbrecht, he's the National Development Manager for Bravo. He was speaking to Georgia Hargreaves about the company rebranding internationally to Saluna because of some of those licensing issues in Europe and the UK. 11 past 12. Well, an apple is perfect in the lunchbox, as you know, but there are other things inside the kids' lunchboxes these days. And Queensland farmers are targeting the booming billion-dollar snack food market in the hope of landing produce in the lunchboxes of Australian school students. Ali Bradfield has the story. Any parent listening will have the same experience of the trauma that is making lunches in the morning. Emily Pullen from Jim's Jerky says this stressful time of the day inspired its latest product, dried sausages made from Australian beef and vegetables. My family, obviously, coming from a beef jerky um, family, loves dried beef. And so it, it wasn't odd for us to throw some biltong or jerky in the kids' lunchboxes, which they really liked, high protein, you know, nice snack. But it, it wasn't something that, um, you know, parents normally do. By packaging it in a way and marketing in a way that almost gives people the idea to put it in a lunchbox. And, you know, it's really important for kids to have protein. And if they're not eating the ham sandwiches, how are they getting it in the day? She says it's the way of the future. Mum and Dad started this business uh, nearly 19 years ago now and when they first started, people didn't really know what jerky was, whereas now there's a proliferation of jerky brands. People have their favourites. They love biltong, they love jerky and it's it's sort of become 
part of our of our culture now in a way that it certainly wasn't 20 years ago and this is just building on from that you know people understand meat snacking now in Australia um, and and this is just moving it into that space and saying yeah this is something that I can throw in my kids lunchbox and they'll they'll love it we're in talks with uh, some supermarkets and some other um, dis- distribution companies who um, have p- partnerships with smaller retailers you know certainly um, meat snacking in Australia whether it's jerky or even um, things like uh, pork crackle has just exploded in the last few years so they certainly know that it's not a, a shrinking market mm-hmm. and then it's um, it's calling out the health benefits of having um, you know premium Australian beef with the vegetable content in there and knowing that parents are looking for um, functional foods so not just junk food not just junk snacks but actually something that they know that their kids will eat but they're actually getting some goodness out of them as well when I think about my peer group that have got kids I mean we've all got cupboards full of stuff that we're putting in our kids lunchbox and and I think it, it's something that can grow and we've also had some interest uh, in in the export markets as well so we might be putting snacks in kids lunchbox overseas in the next few months too which could be really exciting and it even stacks up to the toughest of critics my four-year-old yeah Mm-hmm. What does it taste like? It tastes like a normal sausage. Is it good? Mm-hmm. Would you eat it in your lunchbox? Mm-hmm. Scenic Rim carrot farmer Richard Gorman says their just veg line came about after seeing success in other countries. Snacking inconvenience. It has double digit growth year on year and would grow faster if it just had more products. It's, it's huge and it's, it's not just children it's the parents actually the parents come first they need parents and grandparents when they see them eat that the kids start eating it as well it's going to be a big part of our company's future some of the products you can use like we'll talk about carrots you can use carrots that would otherwise go to the restaurant trade at a lower price in bulk or you can have something that's bent and because you're dealing with it on farm you can recover it where otherwise if you look at it and you go, right, oh, well, it's not worth us packing that up and sending it to Sydney, it'll end up feeding the cows. But sometimes you've also got to dip in and use first-class product because once you start, you can't stop. Mm-hmm. So the Just Veg products are the last products that will stop packing if we have a severe and major weather event. So once you start supply of these things, we we always make sure we've got stock around us to continue supply and watch this space because there's more to come every line where possible will end up with a snacking version of said product we do a mini melon which is a much smaller watermelon Um, we do snacking carrots the snacking size portions of beans is one of the products we're working on next there'll always still be a demand for the the mainline range of you know a one kilo bag of raw carrots or a three kilo bag of juicing carrots. It's all music to the ears of Texas mother and teacher Nell Burns. She started documenting some pretty amazing lunchboxes on Instagram when she was trying to help her son, who was a fussy eater. I think like I think I'm just one of those persons who's gonna go in all. Like I'm not gonna do things by half. And it probably helps that I'm I'm um, I'm an art teacher, so I tend to like to the things to be a bit visually appealing and I think nowadays things can be really easy for example the sandwich cutters they're like just a push and pull type thing. She says lunch boxes do need an overhaul because they're often full of sugary refined foods but says in Texas cost remains the biggest factor. I use the snacking carrots because they're great they're a great size 
we looked at the strawberry packets the other day and we're like, oh, look, we've been to this farm before. Or the only thing, obviously, being in a regional community and only having access to one local super, like supermarket is obviously price. Fruit um, vegetables have gone up due just to inflation and like floods and natural disasters and things like that. So that's another thing that also I think if in terms of like marketability also needs to be affordable for parents as well. But definitely, definitely um, we're on a farm ourselves. So, you know, using local produce or, produce or just starting that conversation with kids about where it all comes from. It's a good conversation starter as well. Visiting these farms yourself, like I know in, in Stanthorpe, you can go and pick the strawberries. Nell Burns, who's a teacher and mother in Texas in Queensland's Gundawindi region. And if you search ABC Rural and Lunchbox, you will find Ali Bradfield's story on the ABC Rural website. It is 17 past 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varasgetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Getting into some cattle news for you now because a new national lobby group to represent the grass-fed cattle industry is facing legal action in the Supreme Court of Queensland. The civil matter brought forward by Queensland-based Cattle Producers Australia alleges Cattle Council of Australia illegitimately took over the reform process. The matter has been listed for a two-day civil trial starting on the 29th of November. Nominations for board positions for Cattle Australia are unaffected and opened on Friday after the official start of the Cattle Australia Constitution. 18 past 12. And sticking with cattle, because for all the challenges facing Australia's rural industries, the mood is high in the country's meat and livestock sector. Strong global demand increased productivity and ongoing high cattle prices have brought a lot of optimism, particularly for Jason Strong. He's the Managing Director for Meat and Livestock Australia and says the industry is in fantastic shape. I think the meat and livestock industry in Australia is is in an incredibly positive position, but it's also a very strong position and it's a reflection of all the effort that's been made across the industry and the supply chain over the last 20 or 30 years and we've seen all that you know, come together in a, in a more sophisticated supply chain where we have high quality, more consistent product which is really well credentialed in the things which are important to international consumers and it's being sold not just into our domestic market, which is still our number one most important market, but also into these you know, high-value, really discerning markets around the world, which now, as a result of our free trade agreements, also means we've you know, got preferential access into those markets. So we're in fantastic shape. The global demand is incredibly high. In fact, I think you might have said that it's higher than what we can supply. Where is that coming from? The global demand's coming from a, a range of areas. So when you look at the, the drivers globally, and if we just take a step back for a second, you know, one of the challenges that we have is so often we, we look at things through our, our own lens. And here in Australia, we're in a very, very privileged position. If there's a more privileged position for a human to be in than living in Australia, I'm not sure what it is. So we've got a choice. You know, We can make a choice about pretty much anything we want. Majority of the world isn't like that, you know. So um, the the big drivers of demand for protein, and particularly animal proteins and red meat proteins, 
comes from the developing world, but also from some of the, the developed world where we're seeing an increase, a continual increase in affluence, but also an appreciation for you know, the need for high quality nutrition. So globally, you know, the projection over the next 10 years is a 5% increase in the demand for red meat protein. So we're still seeing significant demand growth globally for animal products. Back in Australia, there have been significant um, developments, or I guess growth is probably the right word, in terms of the the carcass weight. Um, can you tell me about how that's come along the past few years and, and how that's grown? If we think about carcass weights historically, we'd go to something like the seasons have been good, there's been more grass and people have hung onto their cattle, and there's a bit of that. Um, but it's a good example of how our industry and supply chain has changed. So there's more value now in higher quality, more consistent animals, which producers get rewarded for. So feeding an animal for longer to get them to a finish point, which makes them higher quality and higher value, we know we get rewarded for that. So people actually feed their animals longer and they've got more grass to do that with. We've also seen a growth in the um, feedlot sector. So more than half of our turnoff now comes through feedlots and that's driven by a number of things. So consistent supply and continuity of supply, particularly into our branded beef programs, is incredibly important. But also, again, getting young animals turned off with a high-quality end product uh, through the feedlots is also a really big opportunity for us as well. So, And they're a driver of carcass weight because you're putting more kilos on an animal animal at a younger age. He's growing faster in the feedlot, so you end up with a heavier carcass weight. So that increase in carcass weight, producing more from less or more from the same, uh, is, is also very closely connected to producing a more consistent, high-quality product for our consumers. And can you tell me how much it's grown over the past few years? Yeah, more than 30 kilos so since 2019. So you know, it's more than 10% increase in, in carcass weight. Um, and being able to do that as part of that increase in productivity for producers is fantastic. You know, if you think about the average prices that we see at the moment, it's worth you know, $300 a head to put those extra kilos on a carcass. So it's great that producers can do that and get that return, and it's great that there's that demand in the supply chain as well for that, um, that extra volume of uh, high-quality beef. There is a lot of discussion. There is in, in no matter what you're talking about, where prices are, where they're going, when they're going to crash, and 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 you just don't think they're going to. I really don't. You know, the the world's very different to what it was five or ten years ago, and you know the only I know there's people got models and they got reasons and arguments behind it, but really, the only reason why they're talking about prices crashing is because they've gone up, which. Sounds to me like they think gravity is the thing that drives prices, and we need to have a more sophisticated uh, version than that. And 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 there is one, you know. So we've got a high quality, more consistent product going into markets where we've got preferential access with more discerning consumers who are prepared to pay more for it. You know, the underpinning drivers and the big macro pull-through drivers are like we've never seen before. And and what we see now is a result of the success of our industry, and our industry has done a fantastic job over the last two or three decades in being better, producing a higher quality, more consistent product and getting that into a sophisticated, more sophisticated supply chain that gets through to our high value consumers. So rather than talking about, you know, the price crashing, we should be celebrating our successes and getting used to celebrating our successes and not being surprised by our success because this was the plan and, and working out how do we lock in these gains or as many of them as we possibly can and get this as the new normal you know where do we actually reset our baseline in a successful 
sophisticated supply chain driven industry and work out what we then do next. It's easy to be glass half full when things are looking good um, and I mean we're in the Pilbara at the moment if you look at the iron ore sector when their prices went down to 40 bucks a tonne they probably thought oh well you know gravity did hit us then. So how do you prepare to make sure that people aren't relying on those high prices and, and prepare the industry for it may never happen but it, it may happen and the prices do drop and people feel the crunch. Yeah it's a, it's a really important point um, and, and there's a there's a difference between being you know, blindly optimistic and and wanting to um, you know celebrate our success without declaring victory and and that, I reckon that's the space we're in now. You know we should be celebrating the success of the industry, but we shouldn't be naive about the challenges. And and we might be in front of most of those, but let's not rest on our laurels. So let's still work out how can we be more efficient. Let's work out how can we manage our cost of production. And if those things don't go against us, then we just increase our margin by managing those things better but let's make sure we continue to develop our markets and be more sophisticated things like the UK FTA when it comes into force the the new access added to our current access puts it at a billion dollar market access market so um, we've got a billion dollars worth of access to that market as soon as that FTA comes into place so getting the EU FTA in places the there's the next one of those so we we don't have the product to supply to those markets now but we still should be lining them up and we still should be making sure we add even more security and and assurance to to what we're doing so uh, absolutely I'm the, the more than glass half full guy um, but you know I think we've got to do it in a way where we're not naive about some of those potential challenges and let's but let's deal with the challenges not in a Hanrahan, it's all going to, you know, we're all going to die away. Let's deal with our challenges in a way that shores up and adds more security to the success of our industry. Jason Strong, he's the Managing Director of Meat and Livestock Australia, speaking to Michelle Stanley. 26 past 12. A little later in the hour, you're going to pop over to New South Wales to Wagga Wagga, where preparations are underway for a big yarding of sheep and lambs for the sale scheduled for tomorrow. A lot of farmers in the east are just getting rid of some of their sheep and lambs after all the weather, the flooding in particular. And curious to know how many head you think might be yarded at Wagga tomorrow. Here at Katanning, and you'll get the details of the Katanning sale today with Tracy Kilner, uh, just under 7,000 sheep and lambs yarded for sale today at Katanning. So how many do you think might be yarded at Wagga? On the text, Peter says, Wagga is a fair-sized sale yard. Pretty sure it can hold seventy to 80,000 sheep, but not sure about cattle. Worrying if the yards are full. Decades ago at Katanning's old yards, I saw buyers being asked to get their newly bought sheep out straight away for repinning of more sheep. The half-day sale was still going strong at six o'clock in the evening. I think they sold the next day, and Peter thinks that was back in the 1990s. The text zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. You can share a memory, uh, make a contribution, give us your thoughts on the text zero double four eight nine double two. 604. News headlines not far away. Just before those headlines, the federal government has announced it will review the immigration system to make it simpler and also to stop the rorting and exploitation of workers, which could have some major implications for farmers. The ag sector relies on seasonal workers and professionals to cover short um, shortages in those sort of peak 
really busy periods. But some of the schemes have been plagued by shonky labour hire companies employing people on tourist visas for low wages and poor conditions. The Australian Workers' Union wants to see all that tightened up with a national system of registrations for employers, tax file numbers for all employees and a pick-it-up-and-go system to allow workers to move around. Daniel Walton, National Secretary of the AWU, says workers should have the capacity to change employers. Well, ultimately what we want to see is complete transparency, that is, there's proper rigour process around assessing who can bring workers in. We want to see workers have the capacity to be able to up and go. That is, that is if you're a visa worker working in agriculture and you find yourself on a bad farm, that you can shift and change employer. That doesn't happen at the moment. What happens for workers, if you raise complaints on farms at the moment, for a lot of them, particularly our friends in the Pacific, is they get told they're on the next plane back home to bring shame to their community. And so we've seen countless, countless investigations you know, this will be another one, which will no doubt point out all the problems, but I'm hopeful now that with the change of government, there's an appetite here to actually fix it at the end of the day. Do employers put in a lot of resources to get people onto their farm or their agricultural business? So the idea that they could just up and go might be frustrating for them. Well, I think if you look at it in agriculture in comparison to everywhere else, like if you're bringing workers over to work in your business, every other industry pays for those workers to come over. In agriculture... Workers have their flights deducted. They have deductions taken out for accommodation, deductions for transport, for water, for PPE. Agricultural workers in this country are treated like second-class citizens. And so I think if we're going to have a deep dive into this, we've got to have a look to say, well, what happens if you're coming over to work in construction or resources, and how does that compare to agriculture? Over in New Zealand, we know that workers have got portability that they can up and go if they are working in an unsafe farm or a farm uh, who's not doing the right thing. And I've spoken to a lot of farmers over the time and they, I think they will welcome that because what it will do is shake out the shonks out of the industry. That is, if everyone is up and leaving from the dodgy farms and people are going to stay working on the good operators. And I think overall that will provide a better outcome for the industry but also provide a better outcome for Australia and Australia's reputation for many great workers from around the world coming here turn some money and help our agriculture industry continue to function. John Azarius, uh, who was formerly worked for Deloitte, he conducted a review for the ag sector in nine, uh, 2019. And at the time, you were uh, encouraging him to uh, put forward a plan to register all the employers. But would that stop this problem of, of, of labour hire companies just disappearing as soon as they, there's a sign of an investigation and, and resurfacing under a different name? Well, absolutely. If you look in turn, up in Queensland with some of the labour hire schemes they've put in place, if you look down in Victoria, the state to move ahead of the federal government here because they've seen the problem and the previous government failed to act. And so they've moved to protect workers in their states and put in place these programs. Now, clearly in agriculture, we've got an itinerant workforce that travel across the country, so it makes a lot more sense to have a program in right across the board, a simple program right across the board for the whole country so that business owners know what they need to do and workers have some security of employment. 
Daniel Walton, National Secretary of the Australian Workers' Union, speaking to David Clawton. 28 to 1, Jonathan Beale is here. What's making the headlines, Jonathan? Thanks, Belinda. A 21-year-old man charged with murdering an Indigenous boy in Perth's east will remain in custody after the matter briefly returned to court today. Jack Stephen James Brealey was not required to appear in the Stirling Gardens Magistrates' Court where the case was adjourned for 10 weeks so evidence can be provided to his lawyers. Mr Brealey is alleged to have beaten Cassius Turvey in Middle Swan on the 13th of October. The 15-year-old died 10 days later. The WA Police Union has voted to reject the government's pay deal. The offer included an annual pay increase of 3% over two years with a one-off $3,000 payment. The union wanted a 5% annual pay rise and a right to limit work-related texts and calls outside hours. And Medibank has warned customers to expect the release of more sensitive data on the dark web. The health insurer has confirmed the criminal responsible for stealing customers' information last month has released hundreds of names, addresses, birth dates and Medicare details on a web forum. The personal data of 10 million customers is at risk. More news, Belinda, at one o'clock. Thank you, Jonathan. 27 to 1. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. And this text just through, uh, not liking what he heard from Daniel Walton from the Australian Workers' Union, and he was pleased with this new uh, review into the immigration system to make it simpler and to stop the rotting and exploitation of workers, which could have some major implications for farmers. On the text, where does this guy get his information? Total crock. Ag sector is different to horticulture. And also you heard earlier in the hour how some Queensland farmers are trying to sort of make their way into school lunch boxes with some different sort of products, like jerky was one of them. And Cam says, unfortunately, most beef jerky still contains a great deal of salt. A 28-gram size of beef jerky has around 22% of your daily salt intake, and most people would eat far more than 28 grams in one serving. Beef jerky would be no different to any other highly processed snack foods that goes into children's lunch boxes. And Cam says we need to remove not only the sugar but also the salt from our children's diets. I think we should work smarter on helping children to enjoy unprocessed fruit and vegetables. Thank you so much for that, Cam. It is a 25 to 1 and off to Katanning for the results of the sheep market shortly. And then looking at that research into how to make mice infertile using some new technology, which could put an end to mice plagues in the future. First, off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Caroline Crow is on deck this afternoon. And Caroline, how's it looking this afternoon around the Southwest Land Division? Yeah, hi, Belle. Uh, it's a bit quieter than what it has been over the last couple of days. And we've got a ridge just pushing through south of the state and generally light winds over the southwest land division. There is a little bit of a weak trough that's extending from the goldfields into uh, southwest into the southwest land division. So there's still quite a bit of cloud about and a some light showers about as well through uh, the central wheat belt district and down through the Great Southern into the southwest uh, corner of the state as well. Um, there is the slightest chance of a thundery shower through eastern parts of the central wheat belt this afternoon as well, but uh, it's just a slight risk at this point in time and not expecting anything like we have had over the last couple of days as well. And then coming into Thursday, there's a cold front that's going to move through.
through um, the southwest of the state. So it slowed down a little bit since uh, yesterday uh, in regards to timing and it's looking around the southwest corner um, sort of late morning and then heading towards about Mandurah to Albany around uh, early afternoon and then sort of Lancelint and Ravensthorpe later in the um, afternoon and during the evening. Now, there will be potentially some uh, showers developing ahead of the cold front though. So even though that's the timing of when the cold front's moving through, we could see um, some showers through the lower west and into the southwest uh, district and around Albany as well um, ahead of that cold front from uh, overnight in the southwest and sort of early hours of the morning or 8am sort of just after sunrise around the Perth area and then as that moves through on Thursday it's going to continue east in onto Friday and then we're going to get a good southerly cold air mass behind the cold front coming into Friday and continuing on Saturday and then Sunday as well and as that southerly air mass is pushing through there would be a ridge that's happening and pushing through as well um which is causing that southerly air mass. So coming into Friday, Saturday and Sundays, temperatures through the southwest land division will be quite a bit cooler than average for this time of the year. We're talking sort of oh, um, six to eight degrees cooler. So temps sort of around 14, 15 degrees in the southwest corner. Um, and even overnight temperatures will be quite cool as well. Uh, the coldest night is looking sort of Saturday, Friday night into Saturday morning uh, through inland parts of the southwest land division. So in into sort of the great southern area and southern parts of the central wheat belt. Uh, temperatures could be sort of below five degrees and even getting sort of two to three degrees in some places. So there is a slight risk of frost on uh, Saturday morning as well. And just looking at sort of some rainfall figures, Bell, for the southwest land division, as the cold front moves through, right along the south coast, uh, we're looking at um, maybe around the 5 to 10 millimetre mark and then as you go further inland, the front is going to weaken. So grading to sort of 2 to 5 millimetres, the Bunbury to Katanning to Bremer Bay area and then less than 2 millimetres as you get further north to Perth um, and a bit further east as well. And then over the next, in that cold southerly air mass, it is a moist uh airstream still so those showers will continue so a lot of showers still pushing over into southern districts uh, in that southerly air mass on Friday and Saturday as well so accumulative totals over the um, period Thursday through to uh, Sunday we could see sort of 15 to 20 millimetres right along um, the south coastal parts, adjacent parts uh, getting sort of a little bit less than that, 5 to 10 millimetre mark, and then obviously a little bit less as you start uh, grading inland as well. So I guess in summary, we've got the cold front moving through, cold southerly air mass with showers continuing along uh, southern parts of the southwest land division into the outlook period. And any of that uh, rain or showers getting into northern or eastern parts of the state then, Caroline? Yeah, so as we head further north, so today uh, the thunderstorms are confined to eastern parts of the north interior and into the Kimberley as well and uh, we can see them on the radar now, they're starting to develop uh, with 
and they could be quite gusty thunderstorms. But otherwise, for the Pilbara, uh, the Gascoyne and into the goldfields um, coming into the next couple of days in the south interior, it's going to be fairly clear. Coming into Friday, though, oh, sorry, coming into Thursday uh, with the trough that I mentioned just before creeping into the southwest land division over the next couple of days, that is going to deepen um, and we might see some thunderstorms in the base of the trough. And that's coming into Thursday, uh, potentially through southern parts of the goldfields into eastern parts of the Eucla and also just creeping into um, the southeast coastal district as well. Coming into Friday, that's going to contract east as we get the cold front moving uh, through and then those showers will continue across the Eucla coast as well, coming into Friday, Saturday and then into Sunday. And then the warnings this afternoon? Yeah, currently the... uh, only uh, have a strong wind warning uh, for the Perth coast through to Albany coast uh, and that's for tomorrow uh, when we have the approach of the cold front. Thank you so much for that Caroline. It's 20 to 1. Richard Hudson here now taking a look at the rainfall figures. Yeah in the northern and eastern forecast districts not much rain around at all in the last day. In the Kimberley theatre topped it with three. I think it might have been nice for some of the firefighters in the Kimberley if a bit more rain had fallen. I know there's a few in the Shire of Broome and there's also one in the Shire of Derby West Kimberley. Both are at, at an advice level. Uh, and then the goldfields, uh, Credo had nine mils, Kalgoorlie Boulder Airport five, and then in the Eucla district, a bit more rain around again. So Eucla, 19 mils, Forest, 17, and Red Rocks Point, 11. Might just make those small puddles and mini lakes at uh, stations like Rolina just that little bit deeper. Uh, in the entire Southwest Land Division forecast districts, the only reading that's had that's higher than say two mils is Yilgarn South. Uh, the Deep Earth Station had seven mils. That's in the central wheat belt. But yesterday, Bill, you know, you were chatting to Neil Rogerson, who was talking about a hailstorm that went through his farm on Monday afternoon. And I think he was saying it wiped out about a 1,000 hectares of his valuable canola crop, which happened to be insured, so he was thankful of that. He farms at Montagin, about 300 k's east of Perth. Well, Ashley Jacobs farms just south of there at Corrigan, and he reckons hail took out some of his crop as well. So it was obviously going through in a strip south of of, uh, Montagin. Um, He was also insured, but... It still wasn't great news for Ashley because he and some of his neighbours are still trying to get back on track after those devastating fires earlier in the year. Our area affected about 370 hectares or so of canola, varying in damage, but probably over 50% loss overall. Yeah, and then there's about 400 hectares of barley, which is nowhere near as much, maybe only 10 to 20%, but it greatly varies because it was so isolated. So what does it mean for you to have this damage now? It is disappointing. We are we are insured, so, I mean, that eases the blow, but I'd still rather be harvesting a, a good crop than a, than a hail-damaged crop. And how's your year shaped up overall? It's been a bit of a roller coaster here because we, um, we got caught out in the big fires here in Corrigan in February and then almost ever since about late March to well, a few days ago, you'd almost call it the perfect season. We couldn't have asked for anything more. We've had 50% 
more rainfall than average, and it's just, yeah, it's been a dream, really, despite these two big serious events we've had this year. That's so disappointing that it's ended this way. Yeah, it has, but we'll get through it. We are insured reasonably, and at least it's not everything. It's only a, only a portion of our cropping program, but yeah, we'll keep on kicking along. How are you feeling after copping the fires and this storm? Are you, are you feeling okay about everything? Yeah, I guess there's been extreme highs and lows this year. We've just been very fortunate that we're looking at a record production year um, that's really eased the blow. So, yeah, having very good crops this year sort of, I guess, makes you feel good about yourself. For sure. And will you be getting back on the harvester today? Uh, yeah, it'll be a slow day. We've had a little bit of rain, so we're just fighting moisture. Yeah, we'll, we'll keep on ticking along since, yeah, our well current canola yields are at record levels. So, yeah, we're very pleased. Corrigan farmer Ashley Jacobs talking to Sophie Johnson about Monday's hailstorm that took out some of his crop. 16 to 1 in other grains news today, the CBH Group has set a new October shipping record. The state's main grain handler has exported 1.18 million tonnes last month, setting a new monthly shipping record, breaking the previous record set in 2012 by 10%. CBH Chief Operations Officer Mick Dore says it's a testament to the hard work of the CBH team, transporters, contractors and growers. And he says the current carryover position is now 2.8 million tonnes. Quarter to one. Some new technology could help control invasive mice by essentially breeding themselves out of existence. Researchers at the University of Adelaide have developed a world-first proof of concept for the technology called T-CRISPR that would make mice infertile. Luke Garris is a PhD student working in genetics at the university and says the technology could put an end to mice plagues. So it's a form of genetic control of invasive mice and instead of using sort of bait and trapping mechanisms like we currently do, it uses a genetic approach to spread infertility throughout a population. So it's much more humane than current sort of mechanisms. So it's breeding out these invasive mice? Yeah, essentially it's sort of spreading that trait throughout the population. been working on this for about four or five years now and it's sort of using very new technology so it's an idea that we haven't been able to do sort of since a few years ago. Why can you do it now? What's this new technology and how is it used? So it uses something known as CRISPR-Cas9 and without going into details it's a way of sort of cutting and disrupting DNA and that was only discovered about 10 years ago that makes a lot of this technology possible. So there's still a lot of work to do. This is just the first sort of step of proof of concept. So the next steps going forward are sort of interacting with the public and stakeholders to get their opinion and feedback on this sort of technology and then sort of slowly progressing to more realistic trials, still maintaining it in the laboratory but progressing to more realistic situations. Is it both genders of mice or is it just the females or just the males? There is some male sterility involved, but the main drive, I guess, is through female sterility. 
Is this similar technology to what's being seen with, say, um, sterile fruit fly and things like that? It's similar, yeah. So it works on the same sort of idea, but this is just sort of stronger technology. So we need to, to get this to work, we release fewer mice and it spreads much quicker. So we can do an initial seeding of a couple hundred mice and then that will be enough in theory to spread and eradicate an entire sort of population targeting an island, for an example. What sort of numbers could, uh, could potentially be eradicated? So we've done some modelling in this paper and we've shown that using this system we can release 256 mice into a population of 200,000 on an island and that would eradicate those 200,000 mice in about 25 years. What could this mean into the future when it comes to you know, farmers dealing with plagues and things like that? Yeah, so it's definitely sort of a new tool that can be used sort of either alongside the current mechanisms or sort of by itself. But there's still a lot more work to be done, a lot more research within the laboratory. And then the next step is to focus on islands because they're a lot safer and a lot more containable. But of course, you know, there's a lot of interest in Australia about using this to stop the mouse plagues that we see and that's definitely something that we will, I guess, be interested in pursuing further, but that's still a long way away. And can this kind of technology, this new technology, be used for other animals, other pest animals that are also an issue? Yeah, hopefully. So the current system that we have is specific to mice, but we're hoping that components of it can be transferred to other species such as rats and rabbits and foxes. Uh, there's a lot of interest in that. Luke Garris is a PhD student working in genetics at the University of Adelaide, speaking to Brooke Neindorf. 11 to 1. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio WA. When you buy roses from a florist, what exactly are you looking for? Is it the colour or maybe it's the freshness? of the flower. Well, the Lee family's been working with French rose breeder Mayland for more than four decades to develop roses for the Australian cut flower market. Larissa Smith caught up with grower Andrew Lee and Matthias Mayland to learn more about the science behind selecting the best bloom. This, this is the variety Mint Tea, yeah. which came in approximately three years ago and is a beautiful sort of cream green coloured rose. What's interesting is you see there's a, there's a little bit of pink on the outer petal. There's the green outside that is really, really nice. The productivity is good for, for what you saw? Yes. It's, yes. So, and Bar's life is excellent, which is also an incredibly important characteristic for uh, cut roses. Yeah. This is so new, it is actually still a code-numbered variety, so yet to be officially you know, given a name. Well, because here some things arrive before they are commercial anywhere in the world. And the, 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 the game is that it is selected for here for the conditions of Australia and specifically of Tasmania. And then to see if it will be reproduced at different places. Something that can be selected here can go easily to Japan or to Mexico in high altitude. So it's that climate that is temperate, but basically with a lot of sunlight. So... It's, it's really beautiful to see it at different places of the world. Then you can gather, the, you can have an imagination. But then the colour 
has to fit the locals and what the local wants might be different in different places but there it's a peachy kind of light color nude wow, it's gonna work automatically I mean as a bunch you see if you take two you put them next to each other it's gonna be beautiful so how many of these varieties will end up staying within the southern hemisphere of the varieties we bring in in any given year approximately maybe 10% will be commercial and then out of that 10%, perhaps 30 to 40% would actually end up being grown elsewhere within Australia. You have to think about a cut flower variety as a machine to produce stem per meter square. This is an industry. And even if it looks like we are a lover of the rose, there's still some important thing that needs to be done and it's productivity per meter square, uh, disease resistance or at least tolerance, uh, the minimum care because we don't want to put too many products on it. We want to put the minimum possible because the cost goes up. Also, uh, can it resist to shock of heat? shock of rain and so that's why we're testing a little bit everywhere this year in tasmania i think you were cold and wet yes if i'm not mistaken which is not the normal weather but that gives us a lot of data on the fact that they are resistant or not to that kind of weather before it gets to you how long is it in quarantine for so in australia we run for quarantine between four and six months after entry and then approximately another well, probably two to three months after that we actually received the bushes here. Do you have a rose here that, that gives off a, a special fragrance or is the fragrance kind of lost in selecting for other genetic properties? The fragrance was not looked after for cut flower. Why? Simply because there was so many data that we have to look. Productivity, uh, the possibility of shipping it, how long it's going to stay in the vase. So the fragrance is something that is not that important. But the market is asking it more and more. It's not the producer that's asking it. It's not the wholesaler and it's a little bit the florist. But the florist is being pushed by the people that use the roses at the end. So we have a program right now in France with the universities to see what kind of uh, genetics is behind the fragrance. There's a um, legend about the rose that if there is fragrance, the rose will decay faster. Well, it's a real legend. It's, it's in the brain of the business, but basically it's not true. And we will prove it because we are working on that subject, because that's a need to have real cut flower, with real productivity, with real life, uh, base life, but with a fragrance. Matthias Mayland, he's head of sales and marketing with French Rose Breeders. Mayland, six to one. Well, there is a push to significantly increase Australia's hemp production. A consortium of farmers, industry and scientists is asking the federal government to match $50 million worth of pledged support to establish a hemp cooperative research centre. The BID's interim chief executive is Professor Gavin Ash from the University of Southern Queensland and he says in the next decade they'd like to see the national crop expanded from its current size of just over 2,000 hectares to more than 100,000. There's an opportunity here, we see, for hemp to be grown in Australia because of the changes in legislation and also watching what's going on around the world and what the opportunities are for the use of hemp in a whole range of things. Where is the opportunity when it comes to hemp? What could we see produced here? So hemp is one of these wonder crops. We can use hemp for nutrition, 
We can use it for medicine in cosmetics. We can use it in animals and humans. We can use it in building materials, so we can use it to replace plastics. We can sequester as much carbon in a hemp field as a young pine forest, a 10-year-old pine forest does, only in 120 days. So is it purely its association with marijuana that's held it back so far? Absolutely. There was a, a problem with hemp competing with cotton. And so the cotton industry with some uh, nasty friends, not necessarily the cotton industry itself, actually had a campaign against hemp. That stopped hemp production around the world for 80 years. So we have 80 years' worth of research to catch up on everywhere around the world and to use this crop in so many different ways. Are you feeling the turning point? Absolutely. The situation is that everybody feels now is the time for this. We, we have to look at these shortened supply chains. We have to be able to be self-sufficient, but we have to be able to develop crops that will feed, nourish and clothe our current generations. So we can use, for example, in a textile industry, we can have hemp clothing. We can also use hemp to build houses. So we can use it mixed with concrete. Hempcrete will continue to absorb carbon dioxide out of the air even after the building's built. So these are carbon-negative buildings. Some of these other compounds that are in hemp, CBDs, some of these can help people in terms of rheumatoid arthritis, treating people for pain, treating appetite for cancer patients. There is research on the effect on endometriosis and brain injury. There's a whole range of these types of compounds that are just sitting there waiting for the development to actually bring those to market. Hemp CRC bid interim chief executive Gavin Ash with Kelly Buchanan. And the aim of that consortium of universities and international companies is to make hemp one of the top 10 crops grown in Australia. There's more online for you. Just search ABC Rural and Hemp to read Kelly's story. Three to one, off to Katanning now, where a total of 6,897 sheep and lambs were yarded for sale. Tracy Kilner is at the sale. How was it today, Tracy? Numbers were up with limited numbers of quality heavy lambs and ewes offered. The store conditioned plain sheep dominated the yarding with the prices reflecting the quality. Heavy lambs sold to higher demand, topping at $164, and a small yarding of heavyweight ewes topped at $140 with a fleece. Restocker buyers showed interest in young ewes and store lambs, seeing prices trend up with the added competition. New season lightweight lambs made from $20 to $72. Heavier weights, under 18 kilo carcass weight sold from $70 to $106. Trade weight lambs returned $85 to $126, and the heavy lambs sold up to $164 ahead. Heavy ram lambs sold to $133, while the all-season lambs made up to $120 a head. Store ewes made from $5 to $115 for restocker ewes carrying a fleece. Medium weight ewes made from $40 to $101, and heavy weight ewes sold to $140 with a full fleece. Lightweight weathers sold from $57 to $105, and heavy weight weathers returned $90 to $110. Mature rams eased with minimal demand, selling from 10 to $30 a head. Thank you so much for that, Tracy. Over at Wagga Wagga in New South Wales tomorrow, 107,000 sheep and lambs will be yarded. Livestock agent Ron Rutledge says it's all because of the floods. There's 83,000 approximate lambs and 23,000 mutton, which is a, a huge number of sheep and lambs for, for one centre. That's massive. Is, is there word on whether that's a record? Oh, let's wait to see. That will probably trim off just because of yarding capacity uh, between now and tomorrow. But 
certainly it's uh, it's right up there. And you know, three or four fine days, it's amazing what it brings out. Yeah, hundred and seven thousand. What has brought so many sheep and lambs to the market? Oh, flooding is probably the primary thing. Flooding uh, to the north of Forbes has made all the Forbes uh, lambs come south, and certainly. Uh, Access road accessibility. Some people only have one choice and go to Wagga. So it has become the epicenter for sheep and lambs uh, throughout the eastern seaboard for the for the last uh, month or six weeks, and it's just continuing tomorrow. Really quickly, do you think it'll test prices? Such a big draw. Well, if you study economics, it's demand and supply, Warwick, and uh, you know the supply is certainly uh, at its peak at the moment. So it will test the uh, the demand process. Yes. Nutrient agent Ron Rutledge with Warwick Long. Time for the news. It is now one o'clock.